1: Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Tim Parsons argues that now is the time for an Australian space industry to light the blue touch paper. But first up, here's a science event with Chris Waterguy.
2: I'm Chris Waterguy and I run Uncertainty Village, a project to promote curiosity and science at a hippie festival called ConFest ConFest to 6,000 friendly people in the bush near Denelequin, New South Wales over Easter. It's a fantastic time, swimming in the river, hundreds of workshops from yoga to zombie apocalypse preparation. And while there are many new age workshops there, we also now have Uncertainty Village in its second year. Uncertainty Village gives science a friendly and prominent presence at Confest. We have workshops on quantum physics, astrophysics, environmental science, practical psychology, self-improvement without the magical thinking. We even have a friendly immunologist answering your questions about vaccination. You can find out more at chriswaterguy.com slash uncertaintyvillage, all one word, and we'd love to see you there.
1: listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Tim Parsons is a founder of the space accelerator Delta V, mentoring Australian space startups. He's running a startup innovation consultancy called XLAB doing projects in the rural sector, health, finance and defence. Tim gave a talk with slides at the Orbit Oz Space Entrepreneur Meetup. This is my recording of the first half of his talk, where he focused on the broader economic impact and timing of an Australian space industry. He called it New Space 2017, Is Australia
0: Poised for Rapid Growth? No, it's not poised for rapid growth, so we can all go home. Well, actually, <laughs> you know, actually, I think it is poised for rapid growth, and I'm going to try and convince you that it's the moment right now, and this is the year where a lot of things are going to happen. So this is something that I think, as Australia, we still haven't really taken on board, so I'd encourage all of you to do some damage to your bank balance, but really lift up your wider career prospects and do some entrepreneurial stuff. Even if it's setting up a lemonade stand or going and selling something in a market on the weekend, that process of doing and figuring it out and hustling is actually the core currency we we need in space. In, In the startup world, we talk about three stages. First of all, do you have proof of problem? If you can prove you've got proof of problem, Well, does anybody want to give you a dollar for what your solution is? Do you have something that someone wants to pay for? And then, okay, fine. If you've managed to find a few buddies to give you some money, but can you scale this to becoming a global exponential business? Can you become the next Atlassian? Could you become the next Shell? Could you become the next Google, right? How are you going to do this bit? The other part that we also talk a lot about is that we want to validate. We want to teach people to validate with real customer scenarios. So, a real customer scenario, we try to use a minimum viable product. So, let's suppose you've got this idea that if you mash up a hyperspectral camera, a LIDAR, and you miniaturize it, and then you access the Airbus high broadband laser, you can bring back real-time pictures of people sitting on the beach. It'll be a killer, right? And you're going to put it live streaming on the internet, yeah? See yourself from space on your smartphone right now, something like that, right? But the investor is like well i you know i love the i'm geeking out on your idea but who's going to pay for that and how are you going to monetize that how are you going to get that working so what you need is you need to prove as cheaply as you possibly can using an mvp using something that people might pay for that so what you're going to do is you're going to okay i need some validation i'm going to get a drone and i'm going to go and fly the drone around beaches and I'm going to beam the images down and people can get it on the smartphone, right? Something. It may not be that. It may be, may be something else. So the, the important thing is, is that you want to do a project here and the people who want to fund you want to see that these people want to pay you. So the, the impact of the validation grows. So someone going, oh, I'd click on that. Yeah, I'll watch that little video. Oh, that was fun. That, that was maybe 30 seconds for them. And, and if, if 20 people do that, you might be able to raise a million bucks on that. That's like it was a thing. Who knew? So we teach people to try to test with customers the absolute minimum, and amazingly enough, in space, we're able to do that now. And probably only the last five years has that actually been something that's become more and more possible with where technology in terms of software is, where aerospace technology is, where customers are, the sorts of products that people want from space now, which is increasingly data, geospatial information, predictive intelligence, that sort of stuff is something that we can test right away. So this is a frame that I'm going to try and use as a, a, to guide us through this. So the first thing I've got to prove to you guys is, is there a problem? And another way to think about the problem is, is there an opportunity? Is there a moment that we can seize right now in Australia? So why would you do a space startup now? This phone has everything that you have in a spacecraft. Uh, this thing has you know, memory, a really good CPU, has an antenna, has a camera, right? has an accelerometer, has a temperature gauge. It's got internal diagnostics. Actually, it's got a couple of extra things. It's got a touch screen and stereo speakers. You know? <laughs> but it turns out that if you fly this into space in the right way, it'll last. And, in, and a few years ago, some NASA engineers did that. They took a Nexus phone, one of the first gen Android phones, flew it into space, and whoa, it lasted 18 months. All of these amazing things about miniaturization that have occurred in consumer electronics in the last 10 years have totally transformed the cost of the vehicle, its size, hence its weight. And so we have this fascinating moment where these things, which are about, in this particular case, about 10 centimeters cubed by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters, the rockets that we have are too big and too expensive to get those into space. So there's a whole host of folks who are trying to solve that problem. The other thing is is that these things don't have to last that long, although increasingly they are lasting longer and longer and longer. But the first generation of these, because they were so cheap, they only needed really to establish that they worked. So six months. So that was their version of an MVP in the case of Planet Labs was to fly a bunch of these small spacecraft, get photographs from them, and prove that it could be done and you didn't need a giant agency in comparison to lots of people in white coats sitting around having coffee for a long time right which is the traditional space program failure is not an option absolutely every little last thing has to be ticked off you know innovation is actually very slow because innovation increases your risk profile and so that's been the pattern. And, and also this idea that the, the sticker price, the entry price for the ticket into this industry is so massive. Now we do have other uh, you know, countries with aggressive programs like South Korea, like India, like Ukraine, who've managed to bring the cost way down and do a huge amount. You know There's a Mars mission that India did recently that was officially $60 million, but unofficially 15 but they actually used a lot of the techniques that we want to use now to lower the cost of of space. And the only thing that's holding this back right now is not the number of people who've created CubeSats or want to get payloads into orbit. It's the amount of launch slots that people can get. And so there's this big scramble going on around the world to fulfill these launch slots and start to try and see what kind of value can be created. And There's a whole lot of startup activity that's been happening when you go to new space in the U.S., for example, which is a conference that happens every year. There is a lot of money in the room. There is a lot of deals going on. There's lots of people thinking about things. Although, interestingly, the U.S., the market is slightly skewed. It's slightly weird because you have people like the U.S. Air Force and NASA to sell to, and those folks occupy all levels of the value chain and completely stuff up the value chain, actually. Whereas here in the real world, what we have to do is make space service customers who are prepared to pay, or we have to join international programs that are going into deep space who are prepared to pay. We don't have like NASA or the US Air Force at this stage who are able to buy some random piece of kit, for example, who are able to s- support companies like, like Bigelow, which is a company that could not exist in Australia because it relies so heavily on government money. Or even for that matter, SpaceX, which you know, landed a, a multi-billion dollar contract so we'd like to think of SpaceX as a startup, and if you visit it and go there and hang out, it feels like a startup, and the engineers are there, and the designers are there, and the 3D fabrication is there, but they want a big ass US government contract, and that's how they've been able to bootstrap themselves up. In terms of the opportunity, the other thing about space startups in Australia, why would we do them in Australia? You know, I've just talked about America, we've got all this money, we've got all these institutions. Why the hell would we do them in Australia? Well, there is this sort of fundamental thing about us, we have this extraordinary footprint of the planet. The tiny population, yet this massive area. And also this area here, which I'll talk a little bit bit more about later, is the fastest growing economies in the world that are growing faster than anywhere. And this is a great place to launch rockets as well. And so we were, uh, out of Woomera, we were one of the first countries in the world to launch rockets with the Brits back in the day. And we still test cruise missiles and all sorts of things in Woomera. The Woomera test range in enlarged areas is about as large as France. And so you can land spaceships in it. You can do all sorts of crazy stuff. It's been totally monopolized by a bunch of old dinosaurs known as the Defense Department who use technology that's 20 years out of date. So here's an example of a company in Queensland. This is Gilmore Space Technologies. They have a really interesting hybrid rocket technology they 3D print their hybrid motor in here, in fact, and, and they even claim they might be able to restart it. And those guys have just raised several million dollars of smart local money, not dumb local money, very smart local money. So that's an example of, I think, the potential of Australia. And and, uh, I'm someone who's been poo-pooing launch for a while because I've been seeing a lot of technology people doing launch but no business people. This is a company that has business people who have hired technology people. I'm a big tick. So also very close by is New Zealand. We have a company there called Rocket Lab that successfully raised a couple of hundred million from Lockheed Martin and other folks because, hey, guess what, there's not a lot of airplanes from around there to bump into. And also they have great technology people. And they've got one of the first new liquid field motors in the world. So it just goes to show that we can do, even the Kiwis have the talent to do stuff that's better than anywhere else. And we certainly do too. I think there's a proof of opportunity. So I want to go to proof of market. So there's an online revolution that's going on in every single industry in the world. It's probably shaped your lives, especially if you're a Gen Z. But for those of us who are a little older, I think we've, we, some of us maybe we forget that it used to be that you didn't have mobile phones and you had to turn up and go to a payphone if you were late and all that kind of stuff. And this is something that you have to be aware of if you're in the space sector. And you have to be able to relate what you're doing to the wider community. This change is profound. There's also, thanks to this world, all sorts of applications that need to be powered by data. And it just so happens that even though we have some amazing people who've been working in geospatial data, in sensor data, in all sorts of different areas, most of them are trapped in institutions. There's no Atlassian for geospatial imagery. There's no Google for predictive AI. Maybe that will be Google, uh, using space data. A whole raft of folks who are starting to understand how they can do things like like using GPS to track the tilt in the materials, in in the stuff that's being shipped inside the canisters, so that they can make sure that the insurance cover is complete for that product that they want to ship from Australia to China or vice versa, right? There are people who are saying that we've got this increasing extreme weather events as the temperature gradients in the earth become more mixed up thanks to climate change. And so we need to be able to respond right now. We need to be able to respond like... First responders should be able to turn up to a location and literally put on VR glasses and know where everyone is, like straight away. And guess what? They can't do that, except in Hollywood. So even though we look at all this technology that we think is out there, it's not out there. It hasn't been commercialized. It's trapped in our institutions in Australia. And so it's kind of up to us to leverage it out of there and get it out to the market. Here's a really interesting example. This is where a whole set of oil storage tanks have been photographed and then a machine has aligned them all and then is is figuring out who's stockpiling oil and who is not to give them an indication of the oil price futures market. So they're they're starting to use this kind of remote sensing data to decide where to move billions of dollars around in the international finance industry. And those folks might want to be investing in your company or helping to get some competitive advantage by using that data. Here's another great one. We've got a guy here in Sydney who's who's a startup expert on change detection. So he's bringing a technology which allows you to do millimeter scale motion detection from space, millimetre scale. And the way they use it is incredibly long time series of data, usually LiDAR data, but incredibly long time series. And over time, thanks to the fact that spacecraft, the vehicle is incredibly, generally incredibly still and stable, they can actually identify areas of slippage over very large areas. And this is an example of a mine. I think this is in Canada. And they had identified using ground survey, that there was this fault here. And so they were watching it, and they had the the surveyors on the ground had lasers staring at this thing, but they hadn't picked up this area at all. This was an undetected area, and it slipped by a millimetre. And the INSAR guys at MDA, which is a Canadian sort of quasi-government company, which is why they shut down this division and are not doing this anymore, and other people are going to try and commercialise it, what they were able to do is predict that this area here was gonna collapse, not the fault that they were watching. And because of that, they saved a lot of lives and a lot of money. And we just wish that that had been the case with the Australian company BHP and its tailing dam. And so the head office of BHP here in Australia does not have this kind of data about its mines around the world. And so they have a huge liability if anything goes wrong in any of these mines around the world. So somebody is going to put these all together and solve that insurance safety problem at scale. That's what we believe using space data. These are just some examples of real world applications. And then we've also got folks locally who are doing a fantastic job. These guys are about to come out in the press. They've had a very successful local raise and they've secured frequencies all around the world for an IoT CubeSat network And I think they're gonna be able to deliver that network for about a tenth of the cost of the one that Richard Branson wants to do, if not a hundredth using small satellites. Extraordinary story, female founder. She raised $5 million and had her second child and got married all at the same time. So you think you're busy? Wait till you meet Flavia. What we've also got in space is we've got a really engaged online community. Space is crack for geeks, yeah? Every time a serious story goes out in the news, it kind of gets a huge click-through rate. And so more and more brands, if they're pitched cleverly, are starting to say, well, let's invest in this. The latest one, thanks to the Google Lunar X Prize, there are a bunch of brands coming into a couple of those Google Lunar Prize teams, like Audi is one, and iSpace, which is a kind of Harvey Norman type retailer in Japan, would you believe, is another. And again, we aren't doing this in Australia enough yet. We haven't figured that out, which is weird considering we win a hell of a lot of awards all around the world for our marketing and our advertising. We have a really vibrant, really active advertising marketing community here, especially in Sydney. And when I go and talk to them about space, they all start frothing at the mouth and get super excited. But none of our startups are. None of our technology people are thinking about that as a possible way of getting funding or of growing their runway or of trying to influence folks. So, you know, this is something else to think about. Hats off to Seb yourselves for the CubeRider program, which was the first ever Australian payload of any kind onto the ISS. No CIRO, love you CIRO, but you didn't do it, right? No defense department, private startup beat you to it, yeah? No universities, sorry guys, you didn't get that award. This guy and his team got that first, the Cube Rider guys, right? So that just goes to show that you don't have to wait. And in fact, as a consequence of, of us moving quickly, the government is now starting to wake up and want, and want to move quickly. Let's just talk really quickly about the value chain. A good way to think about it is, imagine that upstream is like somebody in an apple orchard growing apples and then they have to get those apples to a supermarket. So they sell those apples to somebody with a truck, and the person with the truck takes it to a market, and then the person at the market gets it to Woolworths. That's an example of a value chain. Apples to the supermarket. So in our case, one way we can look at space is sensors and infrastructure in orbit coming down to the ground. So essentially, taking that data processing it to solve problems, mashing it up, taking multiple data sets, running machine learning systems, AI over it to solve huge scale problems. Now there's another value chain that's starting to emerge, just starting to emerge, and it'll evolve over the next 25 years to being an absolutely gigantic value chain going that way up into deep space. But that is a much longer and tougher play. Right now, the real opportunities, the real customers you can talk to are here. And interestingly, I've been talking to a few big aerospace companies right now, and they're seeing that the value chain that they're working in is being scrambled. And their customers are ringing them up and saying, you know what, you're giving us this, but you're not giving us this. So we're gonna cut you out and work with other people. And those big aerospace companies that have been happily sitting there for 20, 30 years are freaking out because guess what? Disruption has come to the aerospace industry, finally, right? So, and to their credit, they're realizing what's happening they're not being, most of them are not being too arrogant and dismissive, they're realizing that they can go from being this big, successful company to losing hundreds of millions of dollars in a matter of minutes, just like Microsoft did with Apple and Google's products, just as IBM did when the microcomputer came out, right? Just as the Telstra division that does landlines has practically disappeared because the mobile guys ate their lunch, right? So another way to look at the value chain is to flip it the other way. And so the validation becomes more valuable as it goes up. So if you have revenues growing, so the value of your space data per picture might be A, but hopefully what actually comes out the other end is 100A in terms of value. On the other hand, if we flip that, the validation you need as a startup flows upwards. So if we had X customers here, let's say even one customer here who's giving you a whole lot of requirements, that's incredibly valuable to you up there and your ability to do this kind of thing or optimise these and, and start to make that value chain work for you and for your investors or partners or your bootstrapping. Just talking really quickly about deep space, NASA is officially getting out of low Earth orbit entirely and leaving that to commercial operators. So we are expecting over the next five to eight years to have a number of other space stations purely commercial in low-Earth orbit, doing all sorts of things for the pharmaceutical industry, using microgravity to heal uh, high-efficiency crystals, uh, doing all sorts of stuff, space tourism, you name it. And so meanwhile, NASA is going to now refocus their whole efforts into deep space. So this Mars mission, which was literally announced like 13 hours ago, they've actually started to talk about how they're going to build the vehicles. And it's almost like an ISS-type thing. There's like five launches to assemble the vehicle, and then there's all these kind of wonderful, so check it out, it's just come out, you know, since yesterday, the, the, their first ideas about how they're gonna use the new launch system to do deep space. The interesting thing with deep space is that, in, in Sydney, we, every couple of years, we have a thing called the Off-Earth Mining Conference at UNSW, it's a really interesting conference. And one of the key learnings from the Off-Earth Mining Conference is that the minerals are worth more left in orbit than brought down to Earth. So the idea that we're gonna go and do asteroid mining to create cans of soup on Earth is not gonna fly. It turns out that building this kind of infrastructure in space is worth so much. So we think that the in-space economy, that bit is gonna grow and grow and grow. And in that realm, Government does have a big role to play because they're prepared to do that stuff. You know, They're prepared to do those huge investments, build that infrastructure, the railhead, if you wish. And so there will be opportunities for Australian companies. We have a, com- a group uh, in our, in our uh, community called Newman Space. They have a very, very high efficiency ion thruster technology. They've moved to Adelaide where they can actually get some money for their technology and raised a bit of revenues probably their future commercialisation will be in that deep space realm. And so probably they need to be working with government folks and others. But we'll see, we'll see. It's it's all up for grabs, who knows. Uh, As soon as I say it, it's probably going to be wrong.
1: That was Tim Parsons talking about why the Australian space industry is about to take off. Listen next week for the conclusion of his talk. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Go to the website, click on the tab on the right to send a voicemail to be played on air. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Worf. Support the show at patreon.com diffusionradio. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of incompetech.com. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including two RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, eight triple C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, two MVR in Nambucca Valley, and three MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science 360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on Diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.